How you doing? It's Monday's programme. Welcome to it. It's the 10th of May 2021. I'm Richie Allen. Who else would I be? Thank you for being here. I look forward to reading your tweets, so do send them to BBG Richie. Lovely. It's the BBG, not the BBC. You're listening to the Richie Allen Radio Show, live from Salford in Greater Manchester. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, Sally Beck is a terrific journalist. She was on the programme a few weeks ago with my mate Jackie Devoy. Sally is back. She's written a very thought-provoking and very important piece for the Conservative women about checking vaccine safety in a shambolic system. I've posted a link to it on Twitter. Do dig it out, read it if you can, before I speak with Sally at the top of the hour. Top of the next hour, I should say. Sally Beck on the programme. Before that, you and I are going to have a talk. Lots to talk about, lots to get into today. So let's not waste any time and just do it. I've had a nice weekend. What about you? How was yours? Was it nice and peaceful and relaxing? We had some licorice all sorts weather fronts and systems today in Salford. Lovely, bright, warm sunshine at times and very wet weather at other times. But uh, look, we're alive, I suppose. We're alive, aren't we? As I said, BBG Richie, there is much to talk about. Boris Johnson will be briefing the media at Downing Street around about now. If there's anything in that of any interest, there might be. You and I will hear about it. I'll bring it to you. I'll bring it to you. One of my team will rush the audio to me. Maybe one of my team. I'll tell you this, and I, I say this now, not so much in jest, but as in as in concern. Where the hell is Kay Burley? Fabulous. So good. <laughs> Where's Kay? All of her co-conspirators are back on the air. All of the party goers who went out just before Christmas to celebrate Kay's 60th birthday and they somehow by accident broke lockdown guidelines. Eh? They're all kicked off the air, so they were, to the naughty step. Most of them are back. Beth Rigby, as I said, Washington, some bloke, Ashish Joshi, is that his name? Was he at the party? I wasn't at the party. They're all back. No sign of K. The ginger ninja seems to be in purgatory still. If I've got to watch Sky News, you know, at least for a few minutes a day, I better have Kay Burley, you know. But we don't at the moment. Uh, the briefing, yeah, the briefing, the briefing. One of my team will furiously edit the audio and rush it to me like Ronnie the Runner used to rush the music videos to Pat Sharp. Right? If Johnson or his cohorts say anything of any interest to Misha or Tussa. All right? Okay. So the message is expected to be hug, but be cautious. Hug, but be careful. Hug, but be go easy there. Go easy now. Mind that granny. That's apparently going to be the message of Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister, in a few minutes. It's a shit show, isn't it? You'd never have believed it, would you? Eh? 18 months ago, go way out of it. I wouldn't have believed it either. I didn't predict it. But here we are. Indoor hospitality and household mixing set to return next Monday. That's the 17th of May. 30 people will be allowed, allowed to attend weddings. 
receptions, funerals and wakes. But the government is expected to urge people to be cautious over physical contact with others. PG Woodhouse, careful there, Vicar, careful, careful there, careful there now, you're a bit too close there. Two seconds now, move back from Granny. That's how it's going to be. And the Poles, the Polish people, they're launching a pilot program tomorrow to vaccinate. No, no, they're not. They're launching a pilot program next Monday to vaccinate employees of large companies in the workplace. It never ends. It's relentless. The Polish government wants employees of large companies to be where there's lots of employees to be vaccinated. The minister responsible for Poland's vaccination programme confirmed this today. They're not doing too well, the Poles, or they're doing well, depending on your perspective. 32.6% of adult Poles have had at least one jab. 11.7% well, they're fully vaccinated. We're worried about supply, said Michal. Michal Dworczyk. Michal Dworczyk. That's what he said. We're worried about, a little bit worried about the supply. And the polls want influencers and celebrities to take part in the campaign to encourage people to come forward. Can anybody think of a Polish celebrity? Anybody? Answers on a postcard. I can't. I can't. Polish celebrities? Anyone? Anyone? Maybe. Okay. 60 to 70% of Polish people are willing to be vaccinated, according to a poll in the country. Influencers, influencers, influencers. I'm not going to get into this right now. People aged 16 and over are being asked to submit themselves for a test somewhere in London. This is relatively recent breaking development. Surge testing planned for someplace in London. I don't know which variant they found. Is it the Indian variant or the South African variant? But they're worried and they're asking perfectly healthy people to rush and have a test it's mental. And sex workers in Germany, prostitutes, have told ladies of the night, have told the be- whores, have told the BBC that a countrywide ban on the industry has forced many into poverty and danger. Sex work is legal and regulated in Germany, but the government has closed brothels and banned the sale of sex as part of COVID-19 restrictions. Jenny Hill told the BBC that they've no choice but the flout the ban. It's terrible. We're broke, say the prozies. But on the flip side... On the flip side of things, your knees don't hurt so much like they used to, kind of a thing, if you know what I mean. Right there. This is the Richie Allen Radio Show, and this is Jackie Wilson. I've so much to tell you. I need to take a musical break before we kick on. How are you doing, by the way? The Richie Allen Radio Show is the most listened to independent radio show in Europe. I'm the presenter. Welcome to Monday's show. Jackie Wilson. (laughs) Higher and higher, the greatest song ever committed to vinyl, in my opinion. It is really my favourite song of all time. Jackie Wilson kicking off Monday's programme. The BBG, Richie Allen with you till 7 o'clock. Sally Beck is on with me in hour two. Don't miss that terrific article in The Conservative Woman. Yes, right. Yeah, I never ever visited a brothel in my life. Don't be kidding me on now. I had a friend many years ago, I can't mention his name because he's still alive and it would embarrass him. He wasn't a bad looking guy at all. He was not. But he had no confidence around women or girls or girdles. 
whatsoever. None. Zero. Zip. Zilch. And he would go on these trips from Waterford to Manchester to watch the Manchester of United play. And always on the trips, he would go to a well-known knocking shop, House of Ill Repute, not too far from the city centre. I could never understand it because he wasn't a bad-looking kid. I used to say to him, come out with me. Let's go to the Bridge Hotel. Let's have a few beers and let's dance. Let's dad dance to crappy music. I guarantee you, you'll get off. Can't mention his name. But he wouldn't. He used to go to these knocking shops. So he said to me one day, come, come with me, come with me. Just come with me. It's not as sleazy as you think it is. Just come and have a look. And I was like, I'll go on then. So I went with him to this place and there was an entrance and there was a room, a kind of a reception room. And the women looked a bit tired now, to be honest to me. They looked a bit tired and looked a bit kind of beaten to the ropes. I couldn't see the attraction. So like a good news of the world reporter, I made my excuses, thanked the ladies for their kind words, and I left. That is a true story. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about it. Brothels. I've never felt the need myself, but anyway. A friend of mine many years ago said to me, and I think there's some truth in it, he said going to a brothel or a prostitute is it's a form of sexual assault, it's a form of rape. Think deep on that. We might get into that sometime on the programme. Think deep on it. Think deep on it. You never know. You might, you might make sense to you. Hugging then. How do we hug cautiously? Hugs should be short and not face to face. Hugs should be short and not face to face. How the fuck do you hug somebody if it's not face to face? This is somebody called Professor Cass Noakes. Cass Noakes, she's a member of the SAGE committee advising the government. This batshit crazy bint says hugs should be short and not face to face. Speaking in a personal capacity, she told the BBC News website that it would worry her if we were advocating that we could hug all of our friends every time we meet them again. I'm, I'm really worried now that people are going to think that it's OK to go out and about and to hug their friends, said Professor Kath. She said the reality is that when you hug someone, you are very close to them and we know the virus is in people's breath. The virus is in people's breath. How the hell does Kath Noakes figure out how to put one foot in front of the other? Madness. And today they were queuing up to tell us that we are allowing hugging too soon. We're allowing hugging too soon. Listen to Gurch Randawa. That's his name, Gurch Randawa. He's a professor in diversity at Bedfordshire, Bedfordshire Uni. What's a professor in diversity? It's in Egypt. That's what it is. Gurch Randawa. Professor in, bi, bi, not biodiversity, diversity. Professor in... Diversity, yeah. Anyway, he was on BBC Radio 5 Live. He won't be hugging his mammy even though she's had two doses of her jab. Here's the Gertz. Here he is. It is about being careful about who you hug and how you hug. And getting that message across, I think, is a very nuanced message. And we would need to be risk, uh, really, really careful. And I'm not sure why we're taking that risk at this stage. And just to give you an example, my mother is in her 70s. She's had both of her jabs. I've not had both of my vaccinations yet. I wouldn't risk hugging her. Wouldn't risk hugging mummy. Mummy's had two doses of her jab. I've not had any. So I think it's dangerous, says Gertrude. 
I just wouldn't want to put that risk on her. That's the point, isn't it? On, on a serious note, it, it's... The presenter is stunned into silence briefly. What did he just say? It's nuance. And can you have nuance in a public health message? Because as soon as that comes in, it, it doesn't really work, does it? We've seen that in the past. I agree with you. And I think that this is the challenge that bearing in mind from May 17th, we are still going to continue with the hands, face, space messaging, which is all about, you know, the good public health protection measures. It is going to be confusing to the public to say, oh, by the way, hands, face, space continues. Um, but judiciously, you can have cautious hugging. It just doesn't work. You can't have cautious hugging. And I think, therefore, the government should be minded to, you know, just sort of show a bit of patience um, and show a bit of sort of moral leadership here and just not build up people's expectations ah. at this stage about hugging. You know what we need to do with dickheads like him and all the rest of them? When all of this is over, if we ever take back the world that we used to have and we make it even better to use their own terminology, we need to do what they do in Singapore. We need to horse whip the skin off of their arses in public, these lunatics, nutters. Horse whip the skin off their arses in public Put it on primetime television. Eight o'clock on BBC One. There you are. I'll be, I'll be programme controller of BBC One when this is all over me. I tell you, you'll never have seen such entertainment on television. If I'm the programme controller for BBC One. Eh? Horse whip the... F anyway. Oh, that was, that was BBC Radio 5 Live. Over on Good Morning Britain on ITV, Deepti Gurdasani. Deepti Gurdasani. She's a GP. Oh, it's too early, says Deepti. Too feckin' early to start hugging. Deepti. I really feel for, you know, wanting to hug people. I haven't hugged my own brother, who's clinically extremely vulnerable and lives 10 minutes from me for the last 16 months. And um, I think we all want to return to normal. Uh, the problem is that returning to normal has been based on the government actually getting on top of the pandemic, which means, you know, containing transmission, bringing it down to low levels and preventing adaptation of new variants and import of new variants. And when they arise to get on top of them. Unfortunately, we're now in a situation where none of that has happened and we have a new variant growing within the UK. So cases of this new variant are now doubling every week within the UK, while other variants are dropping and overall our cases has, have been dropping, which shows that even with current restrictions in place, this variant is growing very, very quickly. In London, 50% of cases now are no longer the so-called Kent variant. And we don't for example, at this point, to know how effective our vaccines are against this particular variant. And we know that it's causing devastation across many parts of the globe, particularly in the South Asia region, in Nepal, okay. in India. So we, have, so we have this new variant you're worried about. Uh, you're worried about transmission. Do you think the government should today, instead of saying from next Monday, you can all give each other a hug, do you think the government should actually say, we've reconsidered and actually you can't hug until next month, for instance. <laughs> so the government said they were following data, not data. That's a presenter. It's supposed to be a journalist. Do you think the government should say, hey, listen, we've reconsidered no hugs for another month? following data, not dates. And one of the uh, points in their roadmap was looking at variants of concern. I can't possibly imagine anything more concerning than a variant that we don't know very much about. In terms I can't. I mean, that, that is... That is news speak, news speak. 
That is gobbledygook and mumbo-jumbo. Listen. Uh, points in their roadmap was looking at variants of concern. I can't possibly imagine anything more concerning than a variant that we don't know very much about in terms of vaccine efficacy. I can't possibly imagine anything more concerning than a variant that we don't know anything about. I mean, it's an open goal every morning for these presenters. I'd love it. I'd be filling me boots every morning. She'd never again go on the radio. I would scar her for life, that bitch. For life, you know? But they don't. They just they, they, they just get away with it. Yes, I did call her a bitch. It is misogynistic language. I don't care anymore. I just don't care. I mean, look at the things they've called me in the national press. Misogynistic is not going to bother me one bit, you know. An absolute useless bitch, eh? I can't imagine anything more concerning than a variant that we haven't discovered and don't know anything about. Ah, all right, I suppose, yeah, okay. Let's move on, 18 and a half minutes past five. Biddy is probably better than bitch, it doesn't sound so harsh. Over on BBC Breakfast, good old Mike Tilsley, epidemiologist. Go on, Mike, surely you're happy we can hug again. Please, let, let's have one boffin who says yes, yes, from Monday. Let's hug the bejesus out of one another. Mike? To me, the key message is, I think it's actually very important for our mental health and well-being that we can hug our loved ones. But to me, the key message is, if and when this comes in, we need to remember that the pandemic hasn't gone away. Um, we are still a few steps away from normality. So it's really great that we can hug our loved ones. But what we need to remember is um, we need to be a little bit careful. So again, do it responsibly. You know, If people have symptoms, of course, you know, if you have particularly vulnerable relatives, then maybe do this with caution because we have really, really high levels of vaccination. But of course, the vaccines are not 100 percent protective. So we need to be a little bit careful. Um, but I think it's a good step in the right direction. And if we look at the figures, you know, the the number of people getting infected, the number of people going into hospital are at really, really low levels, back to where we were in August, which is pretty much the lowest time at any point in the pandemic. So it's a good step, but I think we need to do this a little bit cautiously. <laughs> do it a bit cautiously. Go back, go back a few moments to Professor Cass Noakes, who says, hug, but not face to face. So do you, do you stand back to back and kind of reach your arms around your back? Is that how you hug? Uh, that's a new hug now. Think about it. So stand up now. If you're in the room with somebody, stand up. Get them to put their back against yours and try and reach your arms around your back there. Yeah. Yeah, and that'll help. That, that will help prevent the spread of transmission. So it will. Careful there, Vicar and all of that. These people are crazy. Horsewhip the... Not only horsewhip, horsewhip the skin off their backsides. And... Yeah, dreadful. Hey, two talk radio presenters had a natter about this today. Mike Graham on his talk radio programme with fellow presenter Mark Dolan. Dolan is absolutely as bemused as me and you. Any conversation about hugging is a sick, dystopian joke. <laughs> we are living in an episode of, of that sci-fi comedy Black Mirror. Yes. Which I think it was created by Charlie Brooker. And every every episode of that show involves some sort of weird George Orwell yes. type nightmare. Well, welcome to 2021, Mike. It's not fiction anymore. It is and, incredible, isn't it? I mean, you know, we're even discussing it seems to me to be remarkable. Yeah. Well, correct. And it reflects the amazing overreach of the COVID measures it's it's very clear now that the case for lockdown is crumbling and the fact that it's reached the point where we're having a conversation about who or who we don't hug and touch is ridiculous 
a lot of people are excited about Monday, the 17th, with this sort of semi-unlock. I'm not excited, Mike, and I don't care. I'm sick of it. I've got to, like, go through with a fine-tooth comb exactly what the latest rules are mm. about how many people I can meet outside, how many people can, I can go inside with. Can I handshake someone? Can I hug them? Do I, do I fist pump? Um, am I allowed to be intimate with anyone other than Mrs. Dolan? I think I mean, Mrs. Seriously. Dolan would give you an answer for that one. Yeah, yeah. That, we've been in lockdown <laughs> within the Dolan household for more than a year, Mike. I'll be honest with you. But that's another story. Look, it's, it's too much. It's ridiculous. When we look back on this, we will wonder what we were thinking, Mike. Uh, in my view, uh, you know, there's an argument now that this has been the biggest cock up in history. Yeah. We, by the time we've got to the, the borrowing, OK, you're looking at a trillion quids because the borrowing is not exclusive to mm. this calendar year. It's going to continue for the next couple of years as we as we deal with the, the fallout from that. What would a, a trillion quids worth of investment done in public health? How many more lives would you have saved? Mm. And now we're talking about hugs. I mean, my concern, Mike, is that the bill has not come in yet for this pandemic. The financial bill, the human bill... And the health bill. Mm. Yeah, the health bill, of course, which we'll be paying forever and ever and ever and ever. Bail-ins, bail-ins, bail-ins. Hey, keep bail-ins in mind. I don't want to to fear porn you, because I don't do that. But remember bail-ins. Keep it in mind. That was everywhere today, that story about the hugging. People ringing up BBC radio channels and LBC and talk radio. The punters, like, you know, ringing up to talk about, well, I don't know. I don't know. I'd, I'd like to hug my grandmother, but I'm not sure. She's had one jab. I don't know why she hasn't had two jabs. She should have had two jabs. All this sort of stuff, you know. Pretty soon you'll have to submit a list of hoggies. I might have just coined the phrase hoggies. A hoggie is somebody you will be hugging. So you'll have to submit a list of people you plan on hugging to the local authority. Hugging someone you live with is fine, but if you don't... Uh, but if you want to hug someone you don't live with, you might have to get planning permission. Planning permission from your local authority. Yes, you can hug uh, the future Mrs. Allen, obviously, and you can hug your golden retriever. But anybody else, you've got to submit a list to us and uh, get planning permission. Submit your plans. Submit the date you plan to hug your friend, Eamon. Let's just say Eamon. So the date, the place... And the proposed time it will take to complete the hug. Okay? So if you keep it at two to three seconds, more of a chance the local authority will grant you the planning permission. The local authority will do an impact assessment and get back to you three years later when poor old Eamon has popped his clogs because he was desperate for a feckin' hug. He was desperate for love. Now he's dead. Kirsty McCole, the late great Kirsty McCole, of course, a daughter of the great Ewan McCole. And there's the guy who works down the chip shops. Where's his Elvis? 28 minutes past five, the Richie Allen radio show, live from Salford, drive time. Long wave. Long wave. Um, Richie, listening as I cook the dinner, laughing at you, calling that woman a biatch. And all the crap from this morning's mainstream bollocks. Thanks for making us laugh. Please say hi to us, Carolyn and Marco. That's on Twitter. How you doing, Carolyn and Marco? Put a bit of butter on the spuds there, Marco. 
bit of butter on his spuds there. Nana Nessa says, Richie, I've been hugging all my life and I won't stop for nobody. Piss off, you effing idiot, says Nana Nessa. Patrizia, how you doing, Patrizia? She says, so a fully vaccinated person should not be hugging or be hugged by a fully vaccinated person, nor a non-vaccinated no threat to the vaccinated, which means that the vaccine is less than useless. If we scrape the baloney off the crud, it means this will go on forever and a day, says Patricia. I know what you mean, Patricia. It's mental. It is absolutely stone cold, blinking mad, so it is. Hi to Natalie, Stacey. How you doing, Natalie? To Jason, to Faisal, and to Pauline. Pauline says, Richie, I intend to hug my best friend next Sunday, as I have every Sunday for the past year. I will fill out my intention form in advance. You'll be getting planning permission from your local authority. You'll have to tell them the date you plan to hug your friend and how long it's going to go on for. Of course, and of course, if they bring in planning permission for hugging, that opens the door to your neighbours putting in an objection. Your neighbours might object. I could plan to hug the postman or somebody, and my neighbour could object and say, well, I object. Why? On what grounds? Well, because my house isn't south-facing, and when he's hugging, it blocks out the sun, the big lanky bastard. Because I am a big lanky bastard, six foot six inches tall. And it's all in proportion, ladies, as I've said a thousand times before. That's an old gag. The BBC asked some 14 to 17-year-old secondary school students in Wales what it's like to wear masks every day in school. And... The surprise, you see. Surprise, surprise, surprise. surprise. Yes, surprise, surprise. The children told the BBC, well, it's a bit shite actually wearing the masks every day. It's pretty crap and it doesn't feel too good at all. Here are some of the the kindern. I didn't realise how much I lip read until we had to like wear masks. I do understand that it is necessary because of Covid. However, it does get quite, like, hot. It makes them more spot-prone, um, dries around the mouth, um, chin area, red sores as well on the side of the face. Your face becoming hot, um, you becoming sweaty, sometimes having a bit of a breathing issue. I struggle to concentrate when wearing them. You have to talk ten times louder than you would and say you're at the back of the class and the teacher's at the front of the mask. It's much harder to hear. There are some negatives, but it's keeping you safe from a rather deadly virus. What? Try not to wear as much makeup (laughs) under the mask. Cleanse the skin before bed, really, and moisturise. Keep the skin moist. This is is a skincare woman telling the kids what to do. The kids have just said it makes breathing difficult and concentrating, and your face breaks out in a rash. So they have this woman who, well, I think she does makeup for a living, and she's telling the kiddies... Deadly virus. Well, you hear it. Try not to wear as much makeup under the mask. Well, there's much makeup under the mask. Cleanse the skin before bed. Really moisturise. Keep the skin moist. Moisturise. The mask over the top makes it really dry and a moisture. I heard. I heard moisturise. Did I? So that when I get up in the morning, it won't feel so bad when I put the mask on. Yeah. Yeah. The kitty said wearing masks are pretty bloody awful. Surprise, surprise indeed. Boris Johnson is on his feet in Downing Street. He's answering questions from the media. One of the questions is from, I don't know who, but it's about uh, caution around hugging. Let's hear the question and then hear the Prime Minister. 
Prime Minister, now you're telling people to use their own judgment on hugging, given that it is a significant factor in the spread of COVID. Are you expecting people to be extremely cautious about who and how often they hug? If I can also ask who you're looking forward to hugging. My God, this is how far journalism has fallen. This is how far it's gone, people. I know I keep saying this and I bore myself. So by all means, call me a boring bastard. I'm well aware of it. I bore myself to tears saying the same thing every day. This woman is working for the BBC. It's astonishing that she asked this question. Now you're telling people to use their own judgment on hugging, given that it is a significant factor in the spread of COVID. Are you expecting people to be extremely cautious about who and how often they hug? If I can also ask who you're looking forward to hugging. And last week you said there was a good chance we could scrap social distancing rules altogether after June the 21st. The scientists doing the modelling suggest we have no idea what will happen if that is done. Would that really be a wise move in that case? Jesus Christ. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Romilly. Well, I, I just repeat what I said. I think uh, um, and whoever I uh, hug, I can assure you it will be done with caution and, uh, and restraint. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to, to, you know, act it out now. Uh, but He's not going to act it out now. Uh, I think we all know uh, what, what we mean. It's, it's about basic uh, common sense. And when it comes to um, uh, social distancing from, from June the 21st, um, I, I look at the data very carefully, and I, I think at the moment uh, it looks to me as though we may, we may be able to dispense with the one metre plus rule. That's not yet decided, it's not yet clear, we'll have to, we'll have to wait and see. But it's, it's by being prudent and being cautious that we've been able to make the, the progress that, w that we have. As I say, <laughs> we'll be saying more to everybody, more to business, uh, to give everybody as much clarity as we can about how they should prepare uh, by the end of this month, getting ready for, for June the 21st. Yeah, I wish he'd have acted out the way you should hug. Oh, that would have been comedy gold, wouldn't it? If Bojo had given a demonstration of a perfect COVID hug, basically. Mad times. That was Boris Johnson. This is vaudeville, isn't it? It's the Twilight Zone, Tales of the Unexpected, and Black Mirror all rolled into one. This was the opening of Good Morning Britain this AM. The opening now. Good morning, Britain. It's just gone half past six. Welcome to the programme, Alistair Campbell. Uh, thank you very much. What? Thank you very much. It's a perfect <laughs> week to have you on. Uh, it's not a perfect week. It, I because thought... we're asking today... What is the point of the Labour Party? <laughs> that is why it's not a perfect week. And is it the beginning of the end? I mean, this we had a discussion in the wake of those results and you were not in a good mood and I'm not sure that's improved this morning. Uh, no. Well, it improved through Friday when there were some better results came in for Labour. You were and grasping then... at mayors, weren't you? There were some good mayors mm -hmm. and we'll be speaking to one later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Alistair Campbell. Murderer. Mass murderer genocidal maniac is presenting for a while anyway co-presenting Good Morning Britain with that woman you heard there it's astonishing isn't it you'd imagine that you'd put murderers genocidal maniacs and lawyers in jail in the UK they put them on television and just forget it happened like this is the guy behind the dodgy dossier the Iraq dossier the documents that argued the case that Iraq possessed weapons of mass destruction. But, with, but, but the, the documents that we now know were distorted and packed full of lies. The documents that were altered on his orders, that ginger twat 
who presented Good Morning Britain this morning, distorted the findings, the actual intelligence findings, which said that Iraq was no threat to anybody, really. He had the documents ordered and told the people doing his bidding to make the documents consistent with the speech that George W. Bush gave and other statements by US officials. So fit it up, sex it up, make it look like Iraq is dangerous so that we can go over there and kill millions of men, women and children. That bastard, Alistair Campbell. I'll never be sued for libel here. I can say what I want. A genocidal, mass-murdering, scumbag, fucking maniac is presenting, co-presenting, a magazine programme now for a time, I don't know, a week or two, on ITV, and nobody's got any problem with that because we're living in some sort of weird Twilight Zone Tales of the Unexpected universe. It's mental. Mental, isn't it? I mean, it really is. And while he's doing that, his monster-in-chief, Tony Blair, is gallivanting around the world telling people that they should be using vaccine passports, telling people that they should seriously consider enforcing or bringing in mandatory vaccines, untested mRNA lunatic medicines. These two jokers, who should be, as I've said before, hanging by their ankles in the Tower of London, with their heads two feet off the ground, so that Iraqi mothers can come and piss on their faces. One of them is on telly now, yucking it up with Susanna Reid. The other guy's going around doing the bidding of Billy Poison Jabs Gates. What a world we live in, eh? Yeah, yeah, Alistair Campbell. Alistair Campbell, television presenter, says he's depressed all the time. When Kay Burley used to be on Sky Breakfast, Alistair was on regularly, talking about depression and how he's always depressed. I guess you are when you know where you're going. When it's all over, pal. Imagine, imagine looking in the mirror if you're Tony Blair or Alistair Campbell. Imagine you believe that there's justice at the end of the physical life. I'd be depressed as well. But maybe that's just me. Here's Billy Joel. Uh, Billy Joel. Just to break it up before I say something I might regret. 22 minutes to 6 o'clock. The Richie Allen Radio Show. Live from the great city of Salford. With me, Richie Allen. This is my life. Sing it loud. With your fists pumped in the air. Yeah, they'll be going door to door with vaccines, won't they? That's what you tell them. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone, you mad backsturds. Hey, I'd love to drive a lorry load of vaccines right up the back passage. Boris Johnson, the goon. This is the Richie Allen Radio Show, 13 minutes, 17 minutes, even 17, I can't count, 17 minutes to the top of the air Monday's programme. Thanks to you, the Richie Allen Show is the most listened to independent radio show in Europe. Show your support for this unique broadcaster by making a regular financial contribution. Just the price of a cup of coffee each month will make a massive difference. Visit richieallen.co.uk for details. Sally Beck, the journalist, will be with me here at just after six o'clock today. Dr. Joseph Mercola will be on the programme tomorrow. Publishing company very kind a few weeks back to send me the book. He'll be on to talk about his book about COVID-19. I know many of you know who he is and many of you have been following him for many years so you'll be interested to know he's on the programme uh, tomorrow. I'm looking forward to that as well. I'm also looking forward tomorrow to meeting an Irish comedian and storyteller 
who I came across some weeks ago, some months ago on YouTube. He did a fantastic interview with the Australian comedian Steve Hughes. Remember Steve? Very funny comedian. You'll remember Steve's routine about being offended on BBC Live at the Apollo, which if, if you've never seen that, you should grab it on YouTube. I don't think I'll have time to play it today. It's always relevant. Steve Hughes, great guy. Um, well, Aidan, who's uh, coming on tomorrow, Aidan Killian, is a, he's got a great story, uh, being trapped in Europe uh, with all the COVID and the testing and all of that. Uh, Dolores Cahill. Aidan is a very funny guy, bright guy, Irish guy. He's going to be on the programme tomorrow. Aidan Killian with Dr. Joseph Mercola. Busy old programme tomorrow. Gerald Salente back on the programme this week. We missed him. He's a monthly visitor, Gerald. Gives us the lowdown on what's happening on the other side of the pond every month. But we missed him in April for some reason. I know I had a week off in April. But he'll be back with me on Wednesday. And be jeepers, there's other stuff booked in for Thursday. But for the life of me, I can't remember off the top of me noggin right now anyway. Hey, speaking of um, mandatory vaccines and all of that, Nadine Dorries, remember her? She was on a reality television programme some years ago. Got a bit of stick for that. Taking her, her, her wages as an MP and then doing... Was it I'm a Celebrity? Was it? I don't know. Anyway, she is a minister now, a mental health minister. While she was speaking with LBC's Nick Ferrari this morning, he asked her, would she compel care workers to have a vaccine? This is going to be a big story in the, in the, in the short term. Because I know, and you know, many care workers who have no intentions of having a vaccine. So Nadine Dorries, first you'll hear Nick Ferrari, LBC. It have been reported that three in four care homes have staff who refuse to take the vaccination. That is obviously of great concern to those who have relatives in there. And presumably to you, what needs to be done in your view, Minister? Um, well, I'm sure that's something that Helen Waitley, who's the Minister for Care Homes and Social Care, is um, is across and is discussing with within the department at the moment. As a as a government, we don't have a policy to force people to be vaccinated. Should you have? But... Sorry. Should there be a policy? Should it be mandatory? Unless you have overriding health concerns, obviously, and it was going to kill you. Should you have the vaccination? So that's that is uh, I'm sure a, a something which is under review and being discussed in the department. What I would say is that as we are moving out and easing out along the roadmap, and the prime minister is making an announcement this afternoon about that, we do have to yes. exercise caution. We are leading the world in COVID recovery, and we want to nail this virus. We never want to be in the position that we've been in again. And and as a government, we will be looking very carefully as we take each step out along the path to make sure we are never back there again. It's caution and it's optimism, but we need to be very careful moving forward. Would I force people to be vaccinated? You've asked me a very direct question. No, I wouldn't force people Mm. to be vaccinated. She wouldn't. Nadine Dorries. Okay. Uh, Hugh Pym is the BBC's health editor. He's the latest person to ask a question of Boris Johnson at the Downing Street briefing. Hugh Pym asked him, um, would there be any early lifting of the COVID restrictions? Would it be brought forward from June 21st? Uh, here's Johnson's answer. You might be interested in this. You might not be. Hugh, I, I, I think it's very important that we should proceed uh, cautiously 
but as, as, I, as I've said many times now, uh, hopefully ir irreversibly. And the, the secret of the success that we've had so far, I think, has been that we have been guided by the, the data and we've given time to see the effect of each successive stage on the on the roadmap. So from uh, March the 6th to April the 12th, and then from April the 12th to uh, May the 17th, and then on to, to June the 21st, we've given ourselves a, a breathing space. What's happening today, or what's happening on Monday the 17th, everybody should understand, is a very considerable unlocking. And uh, it, there will be uh, a lot of, uh, of extra movement, a lot of uh, a lot of extra uh, contact. That's just inevitable from what's happened. We think we can, we can do it, but it's got to be done in a in a way that's uh, that's cautious. And I think yeah, cautious and all of that. Right. We won't take any more from that press conference. He is flanked by Chris Whitty, the country's chief medical officer, and the chief scientific advisor Patrick Valance. Right. Okay. What is it, 11 minutes to 6 o'clock? I've just taken a big gulp of agua there. Sin gas. Agua sin gas, if you please. Aussie swimmers are getting the jab for the Olympics. Australian swimmers, not just Australian swimmers, but Australian athletes are desperate to get a coronavirus vaccine so that they can go and compete in the Olympics in Tokyo. Here's the story as told by BBC News 24. Now Australia have started vaccinating their athletes against COVID-19 ahead of this summer's Olympics and Paralympics. The country's been slow to roll out the vaccine for the general population but have decided to let their athletes jump the queue to give them what they say is comfort and certainty in their final preparations for the Games in Tokyo. Olympic swimmer Kate Campbell was amongst the first to receive the vaccine. It's a huge weight off your shoulders to be able to have access to this vaccine. Uh, I'd really, really like to thank the AOC and the federal government for allowing us uh, to have this extra line of protection because we are going into a pretty unknown situation over in Tokyo. So to have uh, this little Band-Aid uh, is a huge weight off everyone's shoulders. Mm, a little Band-Aid, she says. Campbell is her name, was it? Kate Campbell, was it? And when it takes her 25 minutes to do the 200 metre butterfly instead of just a few minutes, and when she can't have her period anymore, she won't think the jab had anything to do with it, you know. Very disappointing swim by the Australian girl there. They're queuing up for it. It's crazy, isn't it? And David Attenborough is ramping up the climate fear porn. David, Sir David, if you please, he says the problems that await the world in the next five to ten years because of climate change are greater than the coronavirus pandemic. Now, he's been named the People's Advocate for Climate Change ahead of, as you know, UN COP26. The summit will be held in Glasgow this November. He's the People's Advocate for Climate Change. He's advocating for climate change. And uh, the BBC says, BBC says this is a very important meeting because we need to keep global temperature rises below 2 degrees Celsius. <laughs> as if we could, even if we wanted to. The sun, the sun drives temperature on planet Earth, not carbon emissions. The sun, that huge big ball of flame in the sky and solar activity. But anyway, here's Attenborough with his um, 
dire warnings unless we do something. I'm greatly honoured to be given the role of people's advocate at these coming COP26 meetings. There could not be a more important moment that we should have international agreements. The epidemic has shown us how crucial it is to find agreement among nations if we are to solve such worldwide problems. But the problems that await us within the next five to ten years are even greater. It is crucial that these meetings in Glasgow, COP26, have success and that at last the nations will come together to solve the crippling problems that the world, the globe, now faces. This is the next big thing, isn't it, eh? This is the next big thing, of course. I won't bore you with any more on that. We've done too much of it uh, of late. Seven minutes to six o'clock, Monday's programme. With me, Richie Allen. Please check out richieallen.co.uk, my website. Spick and span, all interactive and all of that. richieallen.co.uk. If you become a member on there and you post stuff, we give you a 100% guarantee and assurance we do not screw with your data. There are no partners, no third parties. Your data is not collected by us and it is not used by us under any circumstances. So feel free to use the site, get involved, post articles and material on there yourself and I'll be glad if you do. Now, I'm going to do this briefly. You're probably wondering why I haven't said too much about it. I've done so much of it over the years. When I was on Talk Radio Europe, I spent so many nights talking about Palestine the plight of the Palestinians, Gaza, and so on. But look, the BBC is reporting that rockets have been fired from um, Gaza towards Jerusalem. The BBC is saying no injuries have been reported, but Israel's parliament was evacuated as the siren sounded there. Hamas had threatened to do it after hundreds of Palestinians were injured in clashes with Israeli police today. Worse violence, you probably know, in the city for quite a few years. There are a lot of concerns by what I would call reliable sources that the Israeli government is trying to provoke Palestine, the Palestinians, into the Third Intifada. They're trying to provoke a response from um, Gaza that they will say is the justification for carpet bombing Gaza again. That's my opinion as well now. Okay, Netanyahu is a lame duck. He's a criminal. He's still facing all sorts of charges. He's not been able to form a government. He'd love a war anyway. Not that it's a war because the Palestinians, you know, while E. Coyote has got better rockets than the Palestinians, right? They've got nothing against the Israeli army. So he's desperate for it, is Netanyahu, in my opinion. He's a madman, another psychopath. About the best and most fair report I heard on this today was, you're not going to believe this, by a Sky News reporter called Mark Stone. Please listen carefully. Please close your eyes when you're listening to him so that you don't miss anything at all. Because he says some very interesting things. And this is five minutes long, forgive me. But it's important, Mark Stone. At sunrise this morning, the expectation was that those group of groups of Israeli nationalists would be allowed onto uh, what they call Temple Mount. Of course, it is their most ho- the most holy site in Judaism, as you say. But having them on that uh, that area, which is also the site of the Al Aqsa Mosque, 
uh, was perceived to be too great a threat and too great, uh, you could say, a provocation to allow it to take place. So that was cancelled. Uh, and yet we still saw very, very, very serious clashes between the Palestinian worshippers uh, on uh, that site, that compound outside the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and the Israeli authorities. Now, the Israeli police say that they were provoked, uh, that the Palestinian worshippers were throwing rocks at them. It's certainly true that rocks were stockpiled through the course of the night by Palestinians who said that they were going to use those against Israeli nationalists uh, as they attempted to to access the, the Temple Mount, which, as we know, was, was called off. Uh, which came first, we don't know. Was it groups of Palestinians who threw rocks at the Israeli police, uh, or was the Israeli police the first, were the Israeli police the first to act, as they were here at the Damascus Gate last night when we saw uh, unprovoked uh, the Israeli police uh, attacking uh, people, Palestinians gathering here uh, to break their fast at the end of the day? Let's walk around. Well done, Mark Stone. Well done, Mark Stone, a sky present a sky journalist for telling the truth. Well done. It's such a rare thing. We saw, he said, he said this several times today. We saw the police. At other times today he used stronger language, attacking Palestinians who weren't provoking anybody. They'd come out to break their fast. And the thugs in the Israeli police were attacking them. Well done, Mark Stone. I'm proud of you, pal. That's journalism. Let's walk around here. We could, we could give you a, a little sense of where we are. We're at the, at the Damascus Gate uh, entrance to the old city uh, of Jerusalem. This, as I say, was a moment of particular tension last night. It is now a little bit quieter, but it is, uh, as I said a few moments ago, the location where a march of, of uh, Israeli Jewish nationalists uh, will begin a procession through the old city. It's something they do on, on Jerusalem Day every year, the day where they uh, mark what they see as the reunification of Jerusalem as the capital, as they see it, of the Jewish state of Israel. So they'll march down Via de la Rosa uh, through the heart of the old city, through the Muslim quarter, Israeli flags flying, uh, and there uh, they will then get to, to uh, their western uh, wall. Um, that alone, as you said, is seen by Palestinians uh, as a provocation. And because of the confluence of events that we've seen over the course of the past week or so, uh, it's made for a very, very difficult day indeed. The most uh, significant violence uh, here in Jerusalem for at least five years. Um, just up to the uh, beyond us over there, uh, you can see a few buildings. Beyond that is the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, which is an East Jerusalem Palestinian neighborhood. And it's another point of particular tension because there are a group of Palestinian families who, who live there, who have lived there since 1948, since the creation of the Jewish state of, of Israel. Uh, Israeli settlers, backed by powerful Jewish lobbies around the world, want to evict those Palestinians. They want to move the Palestinians out of their homes because they see the land as being Israeli land. It is a snapshot of a situation that we have seen for decades right across uh, Israel and the West Bank. This is incredibly fair reporting by Mark Stone. You just don't get this. I was stunned, really. 
uh, Israel and the West Bank. Palace Israelis wanting to move into Palestinian areas because historically they believe it is their land. The because God promised them in the Bible, apparently. Palestinians, though, live there. It is their land uh, as well. And we have seen over the course of the past year or so a real surge in the number of, of uh, Israeli settlers who are uh, settling in villages and towns within the West Bank in greater and greater numbers. So that is illegally and it's illegal under international law. Is one point of tension. The uh, legal dispute in Sheikh Jarrah over the, these uh, uh, evictions has been halted uh, at the moment, but within 30 days it could go ahead. Um, so, yeah, very, very difficult times here. And the backdrop is a political system both in Israel and in um, the for the Palestinian Authority, uh, which is uh, in it's, it's a mess, to be honest. The Israeli government is still trying to form a coalition after four elections. Benjamin Netanyahu remains the prime minister, but for how much longer? And in order to try and hold on to power, he has been... Um, cozying up to people further to the right than he is, nationalists who uh, have emboldened nationalists, street nationalists, if you like, which has created this, this tension. Thugs. They're called thugs. Created this, this tension. And then when you look at Palestinian politics, well, that's a complete mess. Palestinians haven't been able to vote uh, for their own politicians since 2005. There was due to be an election later this month. That was cancelled uh, because the Israelis wouldn't allow Palestinians here in East Jerusalem to vote. Um, so, yeah, the Israelis won't allow them to have elections. Um, so, a complete mess, to be honest. People are talking about the prospects of a third intifada. This is huge. Listen to this. This is the big problem. The first and second bloody intifadas in uh, the 1980s and in 2000 uh, were horrific. Um, I, I don't think we're there yet. We're not at a situation where uh, there is going to be a third intifada, although in the heat of the moment when you talk to people in there, they'll tell you that, that we're in it already. I'm not sure we are, but the ingredients is there and if politicians on both sides don't try and calm tensions very very quickly uh, we're in for a, a very difficult few months those scenes those pictures of stun grenades going off inside the Al-Aqsa mosque that is going to reverberate right around the Arab world no question Israel may, be, may have done deals with Gulf Arab states in the past few months but they are going to be very very worried to see images uh, like that and we've already seen statements from the Biden administration in Washington DC uh, from uh, Downing Street uh, as well, uh, and more locally, the Jordanians, the Jordanians are particularly worried about what we've seen today. Mm. Netanyahu wants to provoke the Palestinians into a response so that we can go back to 2015 and from the air bomb uh, what's left of Gaza into, into rubble. That's about the size of it there. I don't have to say any more than that. You know how I feel about that situation. It's uh, two and a half minutes past six o'clock. It's your Richie Allen radio show. It is live from Salford in the great, great northwest of the UK. My name is uh, Richie Allen. BBG Richie on Twitter. Sally Beck is a great writer. Uh, Sally is going to join me now in a couple of minutes. Time to talk about something very important indeed. Taking us there, it's Simple Minds and the brilliant Alive and Kicking. You turned me... Simple Minds, alive and kicking on the Richie Allen Radio Show. Monday's programme, six minutes past six, uh, 6.06pm, 6 the 10th of May 2021. Big old week, Dr Joseph Mercola on the programme tomorrow, the Irish comedian Aidan Killian. How can an Irishman butcher Aidan? 
I did my best there, didn't I? Let's welcome back to the programme a terrific writer, great journalist and great broadcaster too. Her byline has appeared on every newspaper in this country. She was kind enough to send me because I didn't see it. And I do stay in touch with the Conservative Woman. Do go to conservativewoman.co.uk. But I missed this over the weekend, an excellent article about vaccine safety. How can we check vaccine safety under this shambolic system? Great bit of reporting from Sally Beck, and I'm glad to say Sally has uh, agreed to come back on the programme. Sally, welcome back. Hello. Good to have you on. How are you? How have you been since we last spoke? Um, really good, thank you. But um, I'm getting an echo on the line. Are you all right with it? I am not getting an echo. You sound lovely, like you're in the room. But I'll tell you what okay. I'll do. I'll disconnect and reconnect and it might get rid of it. It often does. Let's try that. That's the oldest trick in the world, you know. Hang up and dial again. and It might be gone, the old echo there. Nobody needs an echo. Look, Hello? Bet, bet you it's gone now, Sally. I think so. You see, that's amazing, isn't it? For all the technology in the world, just turn it off and turn it on. <laughs> and it, it works again. It's, just, it's such a disconcerting thing, echoes. But um, listen, great to have you back. Um, shambolic you. system. What's shambolic oh, no. about it? Tell us. Well, you would think that if you are introducing experimental vaccines to the whole of the population, you would have a really robust reporting system in case of severe adverse reactions. And we've seen that they don't all get picked up in the lab because since we last spoke, AstraZeneca's um, vaccine has been causing severe blood clots and people have died. So we know that we have to have a robust reporting system. The problem is um, doctors and the NHS are not really signed up to this reporting system. It's totally voluntary. Um, It's what's called a passive reporting system. And just to double check, I made sure I contacted all the UK hospitals that I possibly could and asked them, are they reporting by yellow card or are they logging um, vaccine reactions? And all of them said that they don't hold that inflammation. You were shocked. It basically means they're not. You were shocked by that, yeah. I was really shocked by that. And I think we should all be shocked by that, especially as the MHRA have said that they only receive 10% of the total of reporting, uh, of the total of adverse events. And I think if they're saying that, then it's possibly less. So I know in the US, um, Robert Kennedy Jr. says that their VAERS reporting system only gets 1% of reports. 1%. So... You know, one between one percent and ten percent. So we've got over a thousand deaths now. So read that ten thousand deaths attributed to vaccines. Now I'm sure some of them will be, co- be coincidental, but there's no way ten thousand are going to be coincidental at all. Not if there's ten thousand. And you make an excellent point in the article that this isn't. The system, the yellow card system, isn't advertised. And when I read that line, I thought, yeah, why wouldn't you? If you're rolling out this vaccination, we've got three or four now in the country that have been given emergency use authorization. Why wouldn't you tell people, hey, listen, do stay in touch with us. Do use the yellow card system if anything goes wrong. But they don't. 
They don't. And um, uh, you've spoken to Nurse Kirsty Miller, haven't you? I yeah, know you had yeah. her on the programme. So one of the uh, problems that Kirsty had, when lots of old people started coming into hospital, obviously having adverse reactions to their vaccines, and she knew they were adverse reactions because they were just strange symptoms and there was no other reason for them. Um, she started talking to her bosses about whether they should fill in yellow cards, um, did this contravene any data protection and no one but could give her an answer so she started asking outside of the hospital and she didn't even get a response when she asked no she got nothing <clears throat> and got nothing. that was the beginning of of horror discomfort at, at what was going on so one percent yeah so it's not unreasonable to think there might be ten thousand it's not unreasonable yeah to think that there might be more than 10,000 deaths. What's going on, Sally? Because it seems, I've posted the article on Twitter. I mean, it's on Conservative Woman anyway, which is widely read, so yeah. lot, lots of people will have read it. They didn't need me to, you didn't need me to post it. But it, it it's excellent. Everywhere you went, you couldn't get answers. No, I couldn't. And um, I spoke several times to the MHRA, and they were just really vague. You know, they, I said, how are you advertising the yellow card system? They said, oh, social media, the media. Um, there wasn't really much more than that that they said. So it, I, I haven't been for my vaccination, so I don't know if there's anything in the leaflet. Yeah. But I spoke, I've spoken to people who have had the vaccinations and they say that there isn't anything in the leaflet that you're given afterwards. Again, not to be kind of melodramatic about it or to try and sensationalise this because you can't. There's something very wrong with that. Ordinarily, when you get any medicine at all, I get an inhaler. And every now and then, not too often, every now and then I get these proton pump things, these things for acid reflux, but not often. And I do, from time to time, look at the leaflets. And they very clearly, there are very clear instructions, Sally, as to what to do if something goes wrong. But I have the same information as you. There's no such instructions in these um, in these vaccine notes. Again, why? There's, there's no instruction in the vaccine note um, and you wouldn't expect that probably from the public information leaflet. But what you would expect is the leaflet that you're given which tells you which side effects to look out for and if they don't resolve to call 111 or to go to your to talk to your GP you would expect there's something in there that says if you suffered a serious adverse reaction or if you want to report a reaction please contact the yellow card scheme well said because these uh, medicines are what are known as black triangle medicines now if a medicine is a black triangle medicine that means it's um, on trial, basically. And it's usually on trial for five years. And I'd be amazed if we see this on trial for five years. They'll try and circumvent that. But if it's a black triangle medicine, the reason for that is because they don't know all the side effects that we're going to suffer. Because for two reasons, you can't get the volume of participants in the trial because it, it's not not economic and um 
The other reason is because the batch of vaccine that is produced for a trial is going to be very different once it's scaled up to billions or millions and millions of doses. They won't be able to get exactly the same quality and they, they will have to sacrifice some of the quality in order to get the volume. Um, and so you should expect to have some side effects that you weren't aware of. You know, with the swine flu vaccine, it was narcolepsy. Yeah. And they always mm. tell us that these very rare side effects are one in a million. Well, the blood clots so far, um, we've got nine in a million. And if you multiply that up to take into account the 10 percent, um, that's 19 in a million already. And um, I've slightly lost my thread there. What was I saying? No, no, no. This this is very good. We're, we're talking about the information on, on the leaflets. Um, the, 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 the instances oh, yeah, of... One in a million. One in so a million, yeah. The instances of, of, of adverse events, and that's swine right. And flu, swine flu and narcolepsy turned out to be one in 55,000. That's right. And it, it had to be withdrawn. It wasn't withdrawn by RMHRA, by the way. It was drawn by other countries first. And then the pressure of the other countries withdrawing it um, made us withdraw it. But there were 60 children seriously damaged by that vaccine who were still waiting for compensation. Is that right, Sally? Because I know that some people were compensated. Yeah, they haven't actually received the money. No way. They won. They won the case. They the government kept taking them back to court and back to court, and it took an MP to stand up in Parliament and say, "You know, guys, this we just can't do this. These children are sick. They need uh, financial support because they no longer have a productive life. They need twenty four hour care. We have to pay out." And um, I will be reporting on that soon. I'll come back and tell you more detail about that soon. Yeah. But I know lots of those kids have not been paid. Wow. That was that was pandemics, if memory serves. And yeah. um, that Irish guy, I, I don't mean to sound nasty now, but Gabriel Scali, Dr. Death, who's um, he was very heavily involved in campaigns to get NHS staff to take pandemics. I mean, he went above and beyond to try and convince people to take it. And he's very central in UK media these days. You see him all the time talking about, you know, not relaxing restrictions and vaccinating everybody. The same guy is the same people. We've got the journalist Sally Beck on the programme. Um, very experienced uh, a journalist uh, is Sally. Conservativewoman.co.uk. This is a really, really important story. You know, that hospitals and doctors are not too interested in the yellow card reporting scheme. Sally, you make a great point. And this should be on everybody's minds. If you're going to roll out brand new technology, medicine, and you're trying to compel most of the country to take it, why wouldn't you set up a whole new department that is there to monitor closely any side effects from these medicines to the point where you would be on telly saying, hi, we're the, you know, I don't know, we're the, we, 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 we've been appointed by the NHS. We're the team. Get in touch with us. These are the numbers. These are the websites. It makes no sense not to do that with this new mRNA technology. That's it, the central. Until, until you realise 
that the MHRA is funded by the big pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, it has been. Yeah. So it's it's not an independent body, which is what we need for something like this. Um, anybody who wants to introduce a medicine into our country has to pay fees to the MHRA. Mm. So the MHRA, um, you know, are marking, well, they're essentially marking their own homework, aren't they? Sally, I'll, ne- I'll never forget a few months ago, and I made a big deal of this on this programme. June Rain, the head of the MHRA, was given evidence before a parliamentary committee. And she was asked to broadly describe what the day-to-day activities of the MHRA, the MHRA entailed, uh, Sally. And she said, the first thing she said was that the MHRA was there to provide access for drug companies. And I thought that was an astonishing answer. And I made a big deal of this in a, in a monologue I did. I said, well, all things being equal, you would, have, you would have imagined that June Rain would have said, our job is to prevent bad drugs getting on the market here in the UK. She said, no, our job is to, get a- to provide access for these companies. And I, 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 that's mad. That is mad. And I think the fact that 18 countries suspended the AstraZeneca before the MHRA did yeah. anything says a lot, doesn't it, really? Incredible, really. Yeah, that was right. And I wish I had that clip to hand. It is in my audio bank somewhere, um, but I can't get it now. But I will play it again later on or tomorrow. She did say that to provide access for these companies, not to scrutinise them and to hold their feet to the fire to make sure that they're not going to harm anybody in this country. But no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a kind of a middleman or a middlewoman is more or less what she said. Sally Beck is our guest. This is huge stuff, this, folks. You really need to hear this. Hey, Sally, yeah, before we move on and talk more about what's in yeah. the article, did you by any chance ca- catch Tucker Carlson's monologue? On Fox News oh on God. Thursday. I'm it's it's in my bank of things to watch, but so so I didn't catch it, but I'm aware of it. Yeah, you're you're aware that the the, the basic points of it were that the VAERS, the V A E R S, the American equivalent of the yellow card. If you look at their cold hard data, thousands of people have died within 28 days of having a vaccine. Now, he done a good job, Tucker Carlson. He didn't go all sensationalist on it or make any claims at all, but he did make the point that back in the 70s, there was a swine flu vax rollout in the States. And after 53 deaths, I think I stand to be corrected now, um, they stopped at emergency. They put the emer- immediately, they put the emergency brakes on it. And he couldn't figure out why nobody seems to care about all of these thousands of deaths in America. He also complained that some some credible organisations had mentioned this on Facebook and their Facebook pages had been deleted. Somebody doesn't want people to know that this is going well, on. Well, what's, what's really interesting now is that um, they, I'm starting to see things being written saying that, oh, um, because it's a passive reporting system and anyone can report to VAERS or the yellow card, not all the reports are genuine. So, you know, that's how they will start to make us doubt the figures because we'll now be thinking, oh, well, you know, anyone can just right. do anything and upload anything and it could be a or be a hoax. So you think they might start saying conspiracy theorists are abusing the system? I think they might, yeah. Yeah. What's really interesting, I spoke to a lawyer who works in this arena 
and it's been very successful. And apparently the MHRA upload uh, videos of their meetings onto YouTube. And he said to me, Sally, get yourself a glass of water, get yourself a glass of wine. He said, every time the MHRA show empathy for a member of the public, have a drink of water. And every time they're indifferent to the members of the public and harms that they might have received from medicines, have a gl- have a sip of wine. He said, I guarantee you will not be sober at the end of it. <laughs> Is that right? Did you do it, Sally? <laughs> Were you tempted? Did you watch the I video got, anyway? I haven't got a bottle of wine big enough, Richie. Yeah. Is that right? They're yeah. cold clinical people. When they're talking about ordinary men and women like me, I, I consider myself to be an ordinary man. You consider yourself, I know you're a humble woman. Yeah, they, they, they don't speak with any care or concern. Even today, just just hearing a little bit of Johnson's press conference, um, it's all very austere and clinical and ugly for me, but that's just my opinion. Well, years ago, when I started investigating the MMR and I started speaking to immunologists and, and different people, and I started talking about the side effects which were recognised, and one of those was uh, autoimmune disease and perhaps arthritis. And I said, and, and there was no way to tell um, how bad the side effects were going to be because the drug was only monitored for something like two months. Don't quote me on that, but it was a short period of time. It wasn't long enough to pick up any long-term effects like autism, for example. Anyway, I started talking to professionals about it and um, I said, you know, can children die after a vaccine? And this guy, this doctor said to me, yes, um, it is possible. And I said, well, how are their parents supposed to feel because they've taken their child to get a vaccine that's supposed to protect them and they end up arranging a funeral? And he said, they just have to get on with it. They have to get on with it. it. My God. Yeah. He didn't even say, that's an incredibly rare thing, it's unlikely. His first instinct was to say, well, they'll just get over it. Wow. And they they recognise that that there's collateral damage in this process. Um, But we are not told about that collateral damage. And to be honest, Richie, if we were told, it wouldn't necessarily stop people getting the vaccine because some people would feel, I'm prepared to take the risk. I think this is serious enough. I am prepared to take the risk. You know, if I have an anaphylactic shock, I'll be in hospital. Um, I might avoid the AstraZeneca because I don't want blood clots. But we're not told. And so because we're not told... The system has to deny it, deny it, deny it, because, of course, we should be told if these serious adverse reactions could seriously compromise our our life. Another thing people aren't told about is the vaccine damage payment scheme. And I spoke to a family um, last week and the mum unfortunately died after receiving the AstraZeneca vaccine of blood clots and strokes. Um, And the family, number one, had no idea of the yellow card scheme. 
Number two had no idea of the vaccine damage payment scheme. And they did download the form and they came back to me and they said, there's no real space to put if a relative has died. And I downloaded the form and I had a look at it. And it's very much tailored towards people who are under 16 and people who might be disabled but are still alive. There's no real space if anyone is over 16 and has died. They don't want to so know. I talked, sorry, I talked to the Department of Work and Pensions about that. And they said, oh, well, you know, the COVID-19 vaccine is on the list. So you can claim. Um, the form is off-putting. So if you're not a belligerent journalist like us, you might think, oh, I don't think this form is for me after all. They don't want people to do it. They don't want people to know. That, that's about the size of it. You know, we talked earlier on, it's it's absolutely inexcusable that doctors and nurses and other hospital staff that might interact with somebody who's had the vaccine wouldn't be letting people know about this yellow card system. It's it's inexcusable, really. We've got Sally Beck on the programme, conservativewoman.co.uk. Uh, Sally's byline has been everywhere. Uh, proper writer, old school. I want to talk about journalism with you as well, if you have time in a few minutes' time, of what's happened to our profession. And uh, we can get stuck into a bit of that, maybe. Do read um, Sally's article, please. Amazing information about uh, WHO, the World Health Organisation. This is great journalism, Sally. You, Thank um, you so much. No, it is. I mean, I wouldn't say it if I didn't mean it. You talk about their global manual on surveillance of adverse events following immunisation, the, AE, the AEFI. That's, that clearly states, and I didn't know this, this is what great journalism is about. You read an article, you learn something. They say clearly that there should be a full investigation if two or more cases of the same adverse event are related in time, place or vaccine administration. Couldn't be clearer. Occurring in similar age groups clear. of population. Can you, can you put that in English, what that means? That's huge. Well, uh, so basically, we all remember thalidomide. So th thalidomide was discovered because two mums in the same hospital had children with shortened limbs. And they started talking and comparing notes. And they both discovered that they'd taken thalidomide. So it just took two only two mums to launch a massive investigation. But we know that the drugs companies were telling doctors who wrote to them, uh, we haven't heard this from anyone else. And they buried all the letters in the basement. But thanks to the great old Harold Evans, who was the Sunday Times editor, legendary Sunday Times editor, he pursued that story for 10 years until it all came out. Yeah. Anyway, um, so the World Health Organization, who are advising us what we should do in, uh, you know, you know, to um, look at safety, have said if you have two similar rea reactions. So if you have two people who have reported blood clots after the AstraZeneca, that should be taken incredibly seriously and investigated fully. Well. You know, it took three weeks for the MHRA to suspend. Well, they never suspended it. They just waited for everyone else to do the investigation. And they said, oh, we're not going to give it to under 30s. And now they're saying we're not going to give it to under 40s. Yeah, that's right. But it's not like 
people in their 50s haven't died. Um, you know, we've got 59 people, I think, on their website between the age of 50 and 60 have died from blood clots. And also alongside that, the MHRA were doing something which is terribly wrong. In my opinion, this is my opinion, it's not a fact because I'm, I'm not a doctor. But they're misrepresenting the risk, aren't they? They're saying things like, well, you've got more chance of a serious blood clot even if you get the virus than you do if you get the vaccine. But they don't support that with any evidence, so that might not be true. And they also, you know, don't point out that the vast majority of people in the country are extremely unlikely to die or become seriously unwell if they have the virus. But they keep this thing going, and they're even doing it today on various radio shows, this thing of you're better off getting the vaccine because the vaccine is less likely to harm you than coronavirus. But that's very disingenuous, Sally. Well, that might be true if you're over 80. If you're over 80. Because we know, we know the average age of death for somebody with coronavirus is over 82 years old. And we know that average life expectancy in this country is 81 years old. So at the moment, it looks like you've got a longer life if you get COVID yeah. than not. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But um, the figures are, I think I posted them on my Instagram somewhere. And the figures are something like, for anyone under 70, it's 99.99996 chance of suffering serious harm from coronavirus. It's really low. The figures are incredibly low. Do we have any comparisons, like crossing the road, or I don't know, oh. cycling on, on a on 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 a road, or something like that? It, it's it's it is in that kind of realm of kind of possibility. It's so unlikely; it's almost impossible. It's really unlikely. I don't know what the uh, uh, crossing the road figures are off the top of my head. No, no. But we are told you know, one in two of us will get cancer. Yeah. And we know that cancer's indiscriminate. It doesn't, you know, it affects children, uh, teenagers, young adults, any any age, you, you, you can be affected by mm -hmm. cancer. Um, and you, you know, your life chances are compromised. But it's not the same with COVID. You know, people who don't have comorbidities have got extremely good chances of recovering. And what's the other thing that is really confusing to me, and I do not understand why doctors are vaccinating people who have had COVID. So some friends of mine, um, the whole family had COVID. They were really unimpressed because it only lasted 24 hours each. They, some of them virtually didn't notice having it. But they all got the vaccine um, because the parents own a pub and they just wanted to do right, their own right, their right. bit to help open up the economy. But they didn't need it because they'd had it. Meaning they'd have antibodies. Of yeah. course. Well, yeah. antibodies only hang around for a few weeks. Oh, so T cell what you need immunity. Is a T cell yeah, test. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Everybody I know around, well, most of the people I know around me and the people I meet when I'm out and about are having it. It's kind of funny. Some people know of the show and 
they're very polite with me and I'm extremely, as I always am, polite with them. I'm not domineering at all. In fact, I never volunteer an opinion on anything. But they joke with me and say, oh, I've had it, Richie, and I'm, I'm fine. And, and I'm delighted they're fine. Of course I am. Um, and I wouldn't dare say, I hope you'll always be fine. I wouldn't dare say that. But if they're listening now, they'll know it's what I think. Um, because, uh, you know, they don't know. This is an experiment. They don't know what could happen in a year or two years. And I genuinely hope they'll be okay. But this, this is an experiment of sorts, isn't it, this thing? Yeah. Well, and, and they're called experimental vaccines, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. And what a lot of people don't remember is that um, there's no smoke without fire. So the M- when the MMR kind of kicked off, um, two versions of that vaccine were withdrawn because it was causing encephalitis. Yeah, I remember. So two versions. And, you know, they, history has been rewritten that the MMR has always been marvellous. You know, I've interviewed, um, I've interviewed Andrew Wakefield many times. And the first couple of times I interviewed him, I gave him the treatment now. Yeah. I, I gave him a chasing, you know, and um, and he stood up to it and he was nice and I found him to be lovely and decent. And yeah. I've interviewed him since. And what I can say about Andrew Wakefield as somebody who I never, ever lie. When I say something, it's what I believe. I believe that Andrew Wakefield believed everything he published and I believe he believes it to this day. So t- for me, that makes him honourable. Whether he's right or wrong, that's up to other people to figure out. But I like the man and I regret what was done to him, to be honest. Oh, me too. It was horrific. And I've interviewed him many times as well. And I know that story so well. But what was really interesting was that one of the, I think it was the dean at the Royal Free at the time, his child had had a reaction to a vaccine. So he already knew, the head of the hospital already knew that you could have uh, reactions to vaccines and when parents started contacting Andrew Wakefield and they were contract contacting him because they'd found a paper that he'd done on wild measles and how it could cause Crohn's disease yeah. and all these children who'd had reactions to the MMR had gut problems um, but they weren't being taken seriously the parents weren't being taken seriously Um, So they found Dr. Wakefield and the first thing he did was to pull up the safety studies from the MMR. And after he'd reviewed the safety studies and particularly with the single measles study, so he went right back to the single measles and he found that um, it had been tested at uh, St. George's Hospital on what they described as idiots and imbeciles. Jesus, yeah. And I think two died in the during the trial and they just went oh two have died so we'll get another two and so after he'd reviewed the safety studies and he spoke about that to the dean of the royal free they decided that the right thing to do was to have that press conference that fateful press conference that was the beginning of the end for him and they decided before the press conference that if one of the press asked, should we keep giving children um, the MMR, that they would say more investigation is needed and um, we the single vaccines were fine. 
So, of course, the press were going to ask that question. It was an obvious question to ask if you're being flagged up that, uh, you know, we've been studying the MMR and, and we just we're not quite sure about it. We think it might be causing some gut problems, which is what they said rather than autism. That's right. And the government at that point, instead of protecting the children, decided to protect the vaccination programme. And that's how we got to where we are now. Because um, Salisbury, I think it was at the time, David Salisbury, who was the chief scientist, he decided that you had to protect the vaccine programme at any cost. Sally Beck is our guest. You know, they, they they don't miss an opportunity to have a go at Andrew Wakefield, Andy Wakefield. Even talk radio last week, I'm out running. I listen to, I take turns, different talk stations. When I'm out jogging, they had somebody on, Julie Harty Brewer's programme. Um, somebody had a pop at Conspiracy Theorists. Couldn't mention, couldn't wait to mention Andrew Wakefield. And it makes me think when, when I hear that, they're still very, very nervous about him to this day, aren't they? Well, he's got the skeletons, hasn't he? He knows where the skeletons are. But what was really interesting when I was researching all that back in 1998, 99, is that uh, Andrew Wakefield and his side would show you all their research, any paperwork. They were very open with everything. If you went to the government to ask them to show you how they were coming to their conclusions you would you you would just get doors closed in your face Mm. all the time they wouldn't show you any of the raw data they wouldn't show you you know you you could get the joint committee on vaccination and immunization minutes by freedom of information but no one would have volunteered it no they wouldn't Redacted stuff too. Redacted reams of paper with redacted sentences and paragraphs. I've spoken to one or two people who covered that story and who did it properly, like yourself. Sally Beck is our guest, terrific writer, conservativewoman.co.uk. I put that link out again. Read this story. How can we check vaccine safety under this shambolic system? It's a brilliant um, analysis, really, of the yellow card system and the problems with it in this country. Sally M. What's happened to, to journalism in, in this country and, and in my country? Where, how did we get to the stage where, we, go on, we, go ahead. We got to this stage because a lot of people stopped buying newspapers. So um, the newspapers have had to reinvent themselves. And by and large, they've done a brilliant job. But even the Mail, who I think gets 74 million page hits a day, are only just making money on their online operation so there's no money you know so when I went to Texas to interview Andrew Wakefield just before the GMC hearing the mail on Sunday sent me and paid my expenses so they paid my flight they paid my hotel they paid all my subsistence while I was there and getting to and from the airport Um, And I can't remember how much it was, but it wouldn't have been under 1,500 quid, I wouldn't have thought. Um, And there just is not the money around to do that now. So newspapers are reliant on freelancers like me who will do their own research or they have their online people who are rewriting 
reacting press releases or chasing up what's going on on Twitter yeah, yeah. and Facebook and Instagram. But they're basically office bound. They don't get to leave the office. And I remember always, it was so fantastic. The minute you got out of the office, not only were you going to report on the story that you were about to write up, you would come back with another two stories because you'd be talking to people and, you know, when you're a journalist, people tell you things and you'd go, great, I've got now got next week's uh, work to follow up. And so you just had a never ending sort of flow of stories just from being out of the office, even just sitting on the tube or the train or, or, or the bus or you know, walking around the supermarket, you you can hear people talking about things that are concerning them and maybe be inspired by that. But if you're stuck in your bedroom, like some people are, or stuck in an office, never getting out, I, it, the work's going to suffer, isn't it? Of course it is. I've met great writers like you many times <laughs> over the years in radio. I've never written myself, I can't write, but I met I met some terrific writers. And, you know, I know... From, from speaking to them and listening to you, the lengths that you go to to get stories, the people that you meet, the face-to-face meetings, the lunches, the drinks, you know, meeting contacts, it's, it's exhaustive and it's brilliant. Jean-Anne Crowley, who wrote for the Irish Times as well as the Guardian, the Times, a great actress uh, by, by profession, by trade. Jean-Anne has listened with great interest to this. And she says, Harry Evans was able to put four or five journalists on the story for, as he said, as long as it took, it wouldn't happen now. That's a brilliant answer um, as to why you feel the print journalism has fallen away the way it has. I can't forgive the likes of um, Nick Robinson and Laura Coonsberg and, and uh, let's say, Beth Rigby and, and, and others. I can't forgive them. I can't. It, it kills me. Sally, you know, I've never been, I never make myself out to be some champion or some crusader, but I've always had the balls, excuse me, language to say, listen, that's just garbage. I remember a few weeks back, I went apoplectic on this programme and somebody writing for the conservative woman was listening and mentioned what I said in a piece. I was listening to Chris Whitty effectively, Sally, tell an assembled press group at Downing Street that the whole thing was basically a hoax. Now, what I mean by the whole thing, a hoax, that the pandemic was a hoax, not that the virus is a hoax, but that the whole thing was, you know, basically it didn't affect many people. The the virus passed by most people, all of this. And I'm screaming on the radio as I'm listening to this, live as I'm doing the show, where's Beth Rigby or, or Nick Robinson or, 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 or Robert Peston to say, well, then why have you locked down the country, ruined the lives of millions of people and screwed up children's mental health for no good reason if this thing is very unlikely to be impacting on the vast majority of us. What's wrong with these people? Why do you feel these men and women give them such a pass and throw these softball questions at them, Sally? I don't understand, but it's the BBC, really. Yeah. I mean, the BBC do not seem to challenge the narrative And it's potentially because the Sunday Times was the newspaper who outed, well, who pursued Andy Wakefield. And it was because of them that there was the whole GMC GMC hearing. And it's because of them that he was eventually struck off. Um, The the Sunday Times uh, editor then went to the BBC 
So that whole we think vaccines can't do any wrong um, seems to have carried over to the BBC. But it's just not journalism. No, because there are people out there who are saying we've had reactions. We never hear from them. The last time I heard them do a hatchet job on Andrew Wakefield, um, I was screaming at the radio like you were, going, well, where are the parents who who have said um, that their child had a reaction to a vaccine? Why can't we hear from them? We never, ever hear from them. We never hear from anyone like uh, Mike Yeadon. Or here at Vandenbosch, who've got an alternative view, or Dr. Uh, John Lee, who explained to us all how the WHO had changed the definition of a pandemic. Yeah, now yeah. they've changed the de- definition of how to create herd immunity in a pandemic, and natural immunity doesn't come into it anymore. It's only down to vaccines. I. I'm really hoping that um, the German lawyer, Rainer Fjormich, who is hopefully taking everybody and anyone to court over this, is going to explain to us exactly what's going on because he's got access to, I think, 10,000 um, doctors and scientists. Yeah, that's right. Godspeed yeah. God to him and his efforts. And the likes of Martin Kulldorff and people like that, the only alternative for them was coming on programmes like this. And you probably know, that, maybe you don't know this now, but when they were coming on here, there were stories written about them in The Guardian and other places for coming on here. Because I've, over the years, you know, I've opened the programme up to everybody and anybody, even people with some extreme opinions on on, on some extreme things. And they, they, they carpeted him for coming on this programme. And he stood up to it a bit. I know he, he spoke to an editor at The Guardian and he said, why, what's wrong with this Irish guy? What did he do? And he was astonished when they said, well, oh, it's not him. He's hosted some very dodgy people over the years. Again, you know, the idea that by coming on here, even you coming on here, that you're somehow associated with the opinions of some people I've had on over the years. I had a guy on from California who said that Jews have an evil gene, Sally. <laughs> they have an evil gene, right? So obviously, obviously, I made fun of the guy and I made short shrift of him without grandstanding and trying to embarrass him. I just made short shrift of him. I had him on because he was doing very well in the primaries. Yeah. He was flying <laughs> until he started saying silly things. Um, yeah. But but yeah, so they they were like Kuldorf. Oh, he he speaks to these people, and Kuldorf was like, "Does he agree with them?" And they're like, "No." So oh, so I shouldn't go on then because somebody else went on. And that, I'm not making this about me because it ain't about me, but that's that's a new thing now. That's an idea now. Well, that I'll tell you what, it's madness. a badge of honour being slated by The Guardian. Yeah. And yeah. Um, back in 2010, um, there was a front page story um, on the Mail on Sunday and I was asked to come and write the comment for it. And the story was that this family had finally got £90,000 compensation from the Vaccine Damage Payment Fund for their son, who'd been damaged 18 years earlier. And it had taken them all that time to win their case. And they had won 90, or they'd they'd been awarded £90,000 out of a possible £120,000. And of course, it was a front page story. And I wrote the comment for it. Uh, that was on the Sunday. On the Monday, the Guardian were slating me um, 
and the headline was the vaccine myth that won't die. No way. Oh, come on, guys. How is this a myth? Shocking you. When we've just paid this boy who's irreversibly damaged compensation, it's not a myth. It's crazy. It might be rare, but it is not a myth. And then you have to ask questions, and our listeners will be asking questions. What third party then is putting pressure on the the editors of newspapers like The Guardian? There's obviously some external pressure coming. It could be advertising pressure, of course, you know, more than likely. You know, these companies who manufacture these products advertise other products in these newspapers. So there is a bit of that as well. But that's incredibly sinister. It's a factual story. It's well, backed think- up under Slayton you. Well, exactly. There was no disputing it in yeah. any way, shape or form. They might have just been miffed because they didn't have they were the school, exclusive yeah. and the men on <laughs> Sunday did. Yeah, yeah they might, they, there might have been some of that going on, but you would hope not. I, I tend to find that the Mail and the Telegraph report vaccines in a very balanced way. I don't know... How the tele would well, the Telegraph now have a section that's funded by the Gates Foundation, um, and that's on international health. Is that right? Yeah. Um, the FT and the BBC have all been given money by the Gates Foundation, as have the MHRA. The MHRA almost uh, received almost a million from the Gates Foundation. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, 2016, 2017. And so, it wasn't even that long ago, no, Richard, It's more recent, least. is it? 2018, yeah. maybe, yeah. yeah. So, so the Telegraph International section, Gates has given money to that. This International is Health, International yeah. Health. Yeah. Jesus, Sally. And um, I... I I'll, I'll look into it a bit more and maybe come back and talk a bit more about, you know, what the Gates Foundation is funding. No, do. By, look, that's begging to be in told media, that story. Yeah, absolutely. You know. Listen, um, we're, we're, we're not too far from um, running up on time. I just want to mention again, uh, do, first of all, find Sally on Instagram. And um, I think I'm following you on Twitter. I can't find you on Twitter. I know I'm following you if you're on I'm there. I'm on there. I'm Beck underscore Sal, S-A-L-L on Twitter, I think. And I'm Beck.Sal on Instagram. Yeah, there you are. Beck underscore. Look at that, look at that. I'm I'm a proper loser. For some reason, I'm not following you. Um, But I I was sure I was. I am following you now. I've just just clicked it. So it's Beck underscore Sal, double L. So it's Beck underscore S-A-L-L. I've just followed Sally. Uh, myself. Uh, great writing, Sally. It's a great piece in Conservative Woman. Of course, it should also be not to now in any way uh, impugn the the reach of Conservative Woman because it has a big reach. I'm well aware of that. But this story should be in the broadsheets. It's a very important story. The shambolic state of the yellow card reporting system. How can we check vaccine safety under this shambolic system? Conservativewoman.co.uk. Sally, if you want the final word, it's yours. Thanks for giving us your time. Your time is precious. You work hard, so I really appreciate it. Well, I would just say to anyone, if you've had a reaction or know of anyone who's had a reaction, please go to the yellow card scheme and fill out a form. It's really important that we get the numbers. And also, if somebody has suffered a serious adverse reaction and they're over 60% damaged, because you have to be over 60% damaged, go to the vaccine damage payment unit and put in a claim from the government for um, money because of vaccine damage. 
Need a few more like you, Sally. I wouldn't dream of patronising you. I wouldn't dream of doing that. We need a few more like you. Thank you very much. Thank you and speak again real soon. Sally Beck then on the Richie Allen Radio Show, Monday's programme at Beck, B-E-C-K underscore Sal, S-A-L-L. Great writer, great journalist, principled writer and journalist has written about the shambolic yellow card reporting system here in the UK and the probability that there are a lot more adverse events than we know or that is being acknowledged. And she made a very good point there earlier. She said that it would be unsurprising if the so-called establishment, the government, the medical fraternity, whatever, as more and more people report, it wouldn't be a big surprise if they start to blame conspiracy theorists for fiddling with the system because as the system as it is at the moment anybody can go on there and say that they've had an adverse event and Sally said they might use that uh, as people do get more sick as more cases emerge of people becoming sick and injured by vaccines they might say well you know this is just those old conspiracy theorists Sally Becker there thanks for all the comments by the way that came in during that conversation Really appreciate that. It's, um, I don't think I missed any of them. In terms, in terms of the questions, I think we pretty much covered uh, everything. Right, we uh, are about at the end of today's programme. Just to mention, I know this is of great interest to many of you who have been following Dr. Joseph Mercola for some years. He has a new book out about coronavirus-19, the truth about COVID-19. And I've been reading it. It's very, very interesting. It's very well put together. He'll be on with me tomorrow. There's a foreword in the book by Robert um, F. Kennedy. Um, yes, there is. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so he's on with me tomorrow. Aidan Killian, Irish uh, comedian and storyteller. Shanna Key, you could say. Uh, who's back in Ireland. Aidan will be on with me tomorrow as well. Gerald Salente will be on the programme on Wednesday. Uh, we missed him last month, as I mentioned, as well. And I know, as I said earlier on, there are other guests booked in. But for the life of me, it's escaping me at the moment. Nothing much else, I don't think, came out of Johnson today. That's the Prime Minister Boris Johnson addressing the media from Downing Street, talking about uh, the reopening of the country. Don't make me... Annoyed. He's been setting out the next stage of lockdown easing, which uh, happens next Monday, the 17th of May. Pubs and restaurants can serve people indoors from next Monday. Galleries, theatres, cinemas and soft play centres can also reopen from next Monday. But they do want people going to pubs and restaurants to use this NHS app. Uh, and the QR codes which are at the venues to check in so that they know where you've been, so that, so that they can track and trace you in the event somebody is found uh, having tested positive for coronavirus. It's mad stuff, this, it really is. Uh, but nothing else came out of that, really, so there's nothing more for me to say. Look, enjoy the rest of your Monday, wherever you happen to be in the world. Thanks for listening to today's, today's programme. Thanks again to Sally Beck, leaving you with The Clash. And uh, Rudy can't fail from London Calling. I hope that's on London Calling. I think it is. See you now. Thing, Michael.